0: Well, good morning. It's good to have you here. I love the lines in that song. I think I say this every time we sing that. The, um, Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? Like, the answer is nowhere. <laughs> it's Christ. He's the answer, capital A. That's, uh, that's the theme of the book of Colossians. We're going to see that today that Paul points to. Uh, the answer to life the answer to navigating the, the deceptions of the world around us, the the the, the answer to, to to walking as a as a person and as a as a husband or a wife or a child, even at the end of class, it's, it's all about Christ. To keep Christ center, and i uh, and be okay. Won't always be easy, but uh, that's my anchor, and the anchor will will hold. So I love that. Where else will I go? Uh, nowhere, and. Uh, just struck again how you, 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 can't, you can't make him up. <laughs> you can't invent him. The human mind uh, he, he's so above us. Ultimately superior God creator and yet humbled himself to die and he's that and everything in between. What an awesome Savior. Amen. Amen. God help us this morning as we open your word as we read uh, this letter that Paul wrote um, hundreds of years ago, And pray that Christ would be magnified, that he would have the supremacy here in this place and in our lives. Uh, pray that your spirit would take your truth and truly plant it deep in us. As we just say, help with the bear fruit, God. I need a word from you. We as the people of God need a word from you. To Challenge us and encourage us today, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Pete already read for us the uh, the key, kind of the key central passage there in the book of Colossians, so we'll be referencing that as we go along. Um, I was doing a little bit, I've been doing a little bit of light reading. Um, This is uh, volume one of three, actually, uh, Ian Toll, it's called the Pacific Crucible, and uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a narrative account of the battle of World War II, the war in the Pacific, and uh, it's not fiction, and he does a great job of just writing out uh, the events as they happen, and I find it uh, riveting, um, and uh, so if you want something to read this afternoon, I'll let you borrow it, um, but um, no, really good, and uh, one of the people we come in and um, come to know here at the book, and I, I'm probably going to butcher this, this name, this is Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. Isoroku Yamamoto. Uh, Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto, was the mastermind behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, here's the thing about Yamamoto. He didn't want to do this. He was staunchly against the United uh, against Japan uh, picking a fight with the United States, and he was on record as being opposed to it. And he made statements like this. He said, uh, he said, if we do this, I will most likely die on my flagship. And Tokyo will be burned to the ground three times. If I'm ordered to do it, I can probably wreak havoc with the United States for six months, maybe a year. But beyond that, in essence, we don't have a chance. So what made someone... felt that way, who believed that, what made him go ahead anyway and mastermind those attacks and lead his country into war against the United States? And my suggestion is this, it was a philosophy that drove the whole thing that ultimately overwhelmed even him and caused them to enter the war and, and told us a good job of unpacking of this, so I just I want to rehearse this for you a little bit to, with, with the premise of, of this. The way you think, your philosophy matters. Has implications. This is what was being taught in Japan at the time. Um, excavations of uh, ancient relics carried out. Uh, let me let me start right here. Actually, I'm starting in the wrong place. Japan had uh, once ruled the world in the distant past and was merely seeking to restore that ancient order. Excavations of ancient relics, this is what they were teaching, carried out in various regions of the world, testify to the authenticity of the descriptions of Japanese uh, history, wrote Professor uh, Fujisawa. They brought to light the wonderful fact that in the prehistoric age, mankind formed a single worldwide family system with the Japanese emperor at its head. Japan was highly respected as the land of parents, while all other lands were called the lands of children, or the branch lands. Eminent scholars are unanimous in concluding that the cradle of mankind was neither the Pamir Plateau nor the banks of the Tigris-Euphrates, but the middle mountainous region of the Japanese main island. The ancient Japanese people had spread over China and the rest of Asia, bringing the fruits of their civilization. They'd even reached Europe under the name of the Huns. But the utopian goal order, or but, but the utopian global order had tragically collapsed after a series of natural disasters, and the world had plunged into a dark age in which all mankind became estranged geographically and spiritually from the parent land of Japan to the detriment of world peace. With dissenting voices drowned out, no rhetoric was too silly or cartoonish so long as it supported. The program. And they went on to talk about how there was only one ocean and Japan uh, ruled them all. That was their rightful place. And so then here was the thought process. And this is why Yamamoto and, and his contentions just did not uh, stand while he was overwhelmed by this philosophy. And it's this. If Japan was fundamentally a moral country with a divine mission, it followed that Japan's wars were nothing less than pure, ennobling, and just Enemies who stood in the way of the Kakutai were unruly heathens or bandits or perhaps even demons with inconceivably evil designs. In any case, they must be slain for the cause of peace. Buddhism taught compassion and pacifism. But the Zen priests who had survived the purges of the past two decades lent their full moral authority to Japan's wars. Philosophy matters. And this way of thinking, and Toll said that, right? There's, you, you couldn't speak out against it. It became this overwhelming force, so much so that one of their most highly respected admirals in their navy could not even stand against uh, the overwhelming tide of this philosophy. It just took over and drove everything. And what Yamamoto feared was, in fact, the consequence of that as history tells us, it did not end well and went exactly as Yamamoto feared. That philosophy drove those decisions and ultimately led to a bad end. That's why Paul writes the book of Colossians. He understands this. He understands that philosophy, a way of thinking, can be a dangerous thing. Okay, and so here's the thing, right? We're, we're all philosophers in here today. You don't have to be Socrates or Aristotle or Plato or, or John Marco, you know. It's, uh, um, we're all philosophers, right? We all embrace a way of thinking, and that way of thinking has implications for how we live our lives. So the warning of Colossians is this, we better be careful about how we are thinking, what philosophies we are embracing. That's what Colossians is about. We're going to look at the philosophy that threatened the church at Colossae and hopefully take some lessons out for us today. Here's the background and setting of Colossians. Colossians was written by Paul uh, from prison, most likely during his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, the city of Colossae had declined in significance by the time of Paul. Uh, its neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis were uh, much more affluent, much more influential, and Colossae was just kind of fading off the map, kind of had their glory days, but by the time Paul was writing, uh, fairly insignificant. Um, and um, here you see right here, this little uh, lump of land, this, was, uh, this is Tell. this is the Tel Colossae. This is, it hasn't even ever been excavated. Um, Ephesus, some of the other cities, right, they were more important, so they've been excavated. Colossae still remains under the, under the dirt, so to speak, and uh, there have been permits, and hopefully one of these days soon it will be excavated, but that even maybe speaks to ins- insignificance, like, uh, it's not as important, we'll get to it eventually, um, and then here is where it was located, um, there's the city right there, and then was Laodicea and Haralopolis, and uh, so A little bit of background. For some reason, my next two my next slide is missed. So just let me give you this. um, Not that this. Um, The Church of Colossae was founded by Epaphras. If you look in chapter one, verse seven, Paul's talking about the gospel and the message of the gospel. And in chapter one, verse seven, he says, "You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servants." Okay. Uh, So it wasn't even founded by Paul, and um, it's unclear if Paul ever even visited. Uh, the church of Colossae. There's no record of the visit. There's no record in Acts, for instance. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. It seems at some level, Paul has never even uh, met these people. But here's the thing. Even though Colossae wasn't the most significant of cities and even though Paul didn't even found this church, it still mattered to him. It was still the church. It was still important uh, to him, which I, I find is cool, too. It's not just the churches in the major cities or the big churches that, that are important or that matter. It's, it's, it's all of the churches, and, and Paul certainly plays that out here with Colossae. And, and here's the other thing. If you look at the prayer of Thanksgiving in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Paul seemed to be very pleased and encouraged with how the church was doing. At the end of uh, chapter two, verse five, he says, uh, "You know, he delights to see how disciplined they are and how firm their faith in Christ is." So, the book of Colossians wasn't necessarily written as a corrective. It seems like Paul is pleased, and it seems like the church is is on solid footing at this point. But Paul began to hear of some teaching that was arising in the city of Colossae, and he knew that this could be a problem for the church. So he writes almost preemptively. So I would uh, suggest that. Paul's purpose in writing the letter to the Colossians was to warn them against destructive and deceptive teaching that was beginning to take hold there, and he could foresee the danger in it. Here's the key. His main weapon... In confronting what he called the philosophy, and that's there in chapter 2, verse 8. See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So it's this philosophy, right? His main weapon in confronting this philosophy was emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, which is clearly the main theme of the letter. You want to see how lacking this philosophy is? You want to see how false and dangerous this philosophy is? Look at Christ Christ. Let me show you Christ. And as you see Christ, you will see that this philosophy does not hold up. It's not in line with his teaching, and it is not able to offer what he offers. Look at Christ. Now, Paul never comes out in the letter and specifically states the exact nature of the philosophy, which at some level is frustrating as you're trying to prepare and and, and think it through. When you think about it, he doesn't really need to. They, they know what it is. They're, they're living it. So he doesn't really have the need to specifically flesh it out. And though there are varying opinions as to the exact nature of the bad philosophy, we can get a pretty good idea of its basic nature based on what we know about first century Asia Minor and Colossae, and by piecing together and interpreting Paul's warnings and his positive counter-arguments in the letter. So we can kind of piece together a little bit about this philosophy. As we'll see, and I think you'll see, we'll be able to draw out some foundational principles. As you'll see that the foundational principles that whatever this philosophy was are a threat to the people of God in any generation. Paul's positive points of refutation and the strong Christology of the letter, and that's the value in it, the supremacy of Christ and the way Paul portrays it here is of value just as much to us today as it was to our brothers and sisters in Colossae 2,000 years ago. So what are some threads here? What are some things that we can pick up about this philosophy as we read Colossians? Number one, the philosophy had the potential to deceive because it was presented as a fine-sounding argument. Right? Look in chapter 2, verse I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Look down to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Look over in verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. So deceptive. Deceptive. Appearance of wisdom. The, the philosophy had the ability to deceive. It was attractive. It had the appearance of wisdom. It, it looked good. It had the ability to take believers captive. That, that word take captive is literally kidnap. So the, this threat was to people who sat in the pews or the, the living rooms or whatever, the church of Colossae, every week. Like Those are the ones Paul is concerned about. Like It has the ability to deceive you. And we better be aware of that, that the false philosophies of this world, we can fall for it, okay? And we need to be aware of that. What this means is that you can be sucked into bad ways of thinking without even knowing it. Um, talked about, uh, talk about edifying reading, I read this this summer, death on Mount Washington, sounds great, huh? Um, so uh, growing up in, in Massachusetts, you're very aware of Mount Washington. It's the highest peak in the northeast there. It's, it's just uh, outside of uh, North Conway, uh, New Hampshire. And um, yeah, you're just very aware of it growing up in, in New England. And uh, Mount Washington is one of the top 20 deadliest mountains in the world. It's crazy, because here's the thing. It stands at 6,288 feet. Everest is over 29,000 feet. This is not a big mountain. But people die on Mount Washington all the time. Why? Because they underestimate it. It's a deceptive mountain. Uh, The opening paragraph of this book says, "...it stands at 6,288 feet, a pygmy by world standards. But there's much more at play on Mount Washington than its status as the highest mountain in the northeastern United States. Its peculiar position at the apex of the geological barrier known as the Presidential Range... Creates the potential for weather systems, the likes of which are seen nowhere else on the continent and in only a handful of places even around the world. It talks about when a storm fronts meet atop of Mount Washington, they can produce winds that equal the strength of a tornado at more than 200 miles per hour. For comparison, a Category 4 hurricane like Harvey, the one that deluged Houston in 2017, topped out with wind speeds at 155 miles per hour. One of the, uh, the guys who they're writing about says, In January 2014, I experienced 120 mile-per-hour winds and 26 degrees below zero temperatures, which equates to a wind chill of roughly 80 degrees below zero. I got frostbite on the tip of my nose in less than 30 seconds. It's a crazy place. It's only four miles from the base camp or the, the base, Pinkham Notch, to the summit. People see it. I can, I can climb this thing. They have found people dead on Mount Washington, in flip-flops, t-shirts, and shorts. It froze to death. It's so deceiving. We can go up there. Um, we, we experienced it this uh, a couple summers ago on our, our sabbatical. And so there's Mount Washington in the background, and there's our family. And, and we, we got out of the car at Pinkham Notch, and it was about 87 degrees. We're in shorts and t-shirts. It was humid. And, and I, I told my kids, I said, grab your, grab your sweatshirts, your long coats. And like, Dad? I'm like, why? I'm like, trust me. And, um, and by the time we got up to the top of the mountain, first of all, the visibility was gone. It, it changed like that, and it was 40, about 47 degrees um, at the summit in the middle of July. And, and, but people, they're, they're at the bottom, like, oh, yeah, let's, let's go take a walk up this nice mountain. They get halfway up, and the weather changes like that, and people get stuck there, and they die because of its deceptive qualities, and that's what this philosophy is like. People look at these ways of thinking. We look at, at, at the way our, our neighbors think, our friends, or the culture around us, and, and what we're feeling like, oh, that sounds good. Oh, that doesn't sound bad. And what we don't see is that, that it's deceptive and, and, and destructive. We have to be aware of that. The, the philosophy was hollow because it depended on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Again, chapter 2, verse 8 um, continue, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's hollow because it depends on human tradition. And at the end of the verse, the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There's a lot of debate about what the elemental spiritual forces of this world, what it means. Here's, here's kind of a simple, oversimplified maybe uh, take on that. It's, it's, it's the basic premises of worldly philosophy that's sourced in evil powers. It's kind of what it's getting at there. It's, it's faulty, worldly, foundational thinking that's sourced in evil powers. And, and so, worldly, deceptive philosophies are not sourced in Christ. They're sourced in the things of this world. In, in essence, it's submitted to the world's rules instead of Christ's rules. That's a danger for us. That's a danger for me. It's so easy for me to start thinking like the world. It's so easy for me to start playing by the world's rules. And Paul saw that threat in this philosophy. A couple aspects of that is that uh, participation in practices from the Old Testament law were used to judge one's level of spirituality. You see that over in verse 16. They were taking aspects, and maybe this is why it looks so good, they were taking aspects of even the Old Testament saying, you know, uh, Sabbaths and special days and fasting, like that, like that makes you ultra-spiritual, and somehow that was mis- mixed matched into this philosophy. Also, if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, it talks about this harsh treatment of the body, that there was some kind of a harsh asceticism um, that was also considered necess- necessary for spirituality at this time. So it could include self flagellation, self mutilation, and things that categorize some of the local uh, religions and, and cults there. All right. The philosophy venerated angels and gave much attention to the spiritual realm. Chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. It's also possible, given Paul's emphasis on the superiority of Christ over the evil powers and the spiritual forces, that there was too much fear of the spiritual realm um, in this philosophy that was taking root in in Colossae. Um, Now the veneration of angels that would have fit with some forms of, of mystic Judaism. There were kind of deviant forms of Judaism which venerated angels and included the worship of angels in, in the religion. Um, the local religions there in, in Colossae, the, there was a fear of spirits, a fear of the spiritual realm. And, and, and even with good spirits, you had to kind of placate them in order to maybe to be a, a, good, uh, a good Christian or, or to have good communion uh, with God uh, and so certain rites, such as fasting and observing certain days, would help make the spirits happy and, um, and, and lead to uh, a better life or a more spiritual life. And uh, this type of thinking would have been very common there in, in Asia Minor. Um, and, and here's the thing. So, so being believers, new believers, the Church of Colossae was a relatively new church. Being new believers who were raised with this you can understand why this could be a threat to their way of thinking. It could have been very easily for them to slip back into this. And as Paul saw this way of thinking emerge, couched in spiritual terms, he's like, oh no, this, this could be dangerous to uh, the church there. And then lastly, the philosophy stressed visions and experiences. Chapter 2, verse 18, again, the same verse we just read. Uh, these people go into detail about what they have seen. These, these visions. Well, I'm more spiritual than, than, than Rusty because, Rusty, you haven't, over the past week, you haven't had any great visions, but, I, oh, God has spoken to me. Um, some, of, some of what they're thinking about the veneration of angels, too, could have been like they, they, they saw themselves like entering the throne room of God and even worshiping with angels. And so, and, and so that's how one of the ways they started judging you know, spirituality. And, 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 oh, I'm, I'm, I'm more spiritual because God shows me these things, and he doesn't show you these things. What do you do with all this? Right? Last I knew, I don't think anyone here is worshiping angels. Okay, good. Um, so so what, what are the connections? And, 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 and how can we kind of summarize? Let me summarize it for you. This was a syncretistic philosophy. Syncretistic means kind of just throwing all kinds of things together. Um, you know, back in Israel, like, oh, we can worship Baal and Yahweh and Ashtoreth. And, and everyone's fine with it. And it, it. You see this in our world today kind of embraced a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and whatever fits, and that's, that's, that's what syncretism is. So this was a syncretistic philosophy, which is very common in the ancient world. It seems to have been some sort of blend of mysticism in Jewish and Hellenistic or Greek teaching. Uh, Clint Arnold, the commentator on Colossians, writes this, The Colossian philosophy represents a combination of Phrygian folk belief, Phrygian was that area of Asia Minor, local folk Judaism, and Christianity. The local folk belief has some distinctive Phrygian qualities, but it also has much in common with what we would describe as magic or ritual power. Okay? So here's a summary statement. The philosophy depended on an elevated human wisdom and experience as the means to spirituality and fullness in life. It diminished Christ. And minimize his significance and work because it led people away from depending on Christ. Kind of when you strip it all away, this was at the basis of what the philosophy in Colossians was and Colossae was all about. And all of a sudden it doesn't sound too distinct and too different from our world today, does it? Depending on and elevating my wisdom and human wisdom as a means to spirituality and fulfillment, check. That's a threat to us today. How I think, what I think, what I feel defines reality, not what God says. The diminishing of Christ. That didn't just happen in Colossae. That's a threat to us here as well. Depending on human experience, tradition, and the elemental spiritual forces of the world is still a threat to us as the people of God today. So I was trying to think, like specifically, like what would this look like in our world? What are, what are some things that, some philosophies that maybe we kind of unknowingly embrace that are very much a thread, uh, part of the thread, thread um, uh, of our culture today? And I, I think one of them that I, I kind of came up with, and some of this is based on some reading I did this summer, um, is, is the pursuit of happiness. A personal happiness kind of becomes the be-all, end-all, right? That defines if my life is successful or, or, or not, or if I'm fulfilled, if, if, if I'm happy. I, I read a book, i talk about reading edifying books this summer, I read a book called The End of Youth Ministry with a question mark. It's a great book for a youth pastor to read, right? Like, and uh, by a guy named Andrew Root. And uh, one of the things Andrew Root was, was contending in, in this book, he said, you know, We've just come in Christianity to embrace this pursuit of, of happiness. And he said, and it shows up sometimes in the way we parent. He said, you think about it, we, we spend endless hours, you know, trying to get our kids involved in all of this stuff and, you know, whatever it is, sports or, or this, 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 and this. He said, we're consumed with trying to help our kids find their thing. And why is that? Because if my kid finds their thing, then they'll find their significance. And if they find their significance, then they'll be happy. And and he said, you know, we'll pay lip service to wanting to disciple our kids to follow Christ. But at the end of the day, it seems like we're more concerned about our kids being happy than we are about them following Jesus. And uh, Lifeway Research did a uh, thing. I referenced this at a parent meeting the other night where they uh, they interviewed 2,000 people, uh, I think in their 30s who were, would identify as, as walking with the Lord. They interviewed uh, them and their parents. And what they did is then they went back, and they kind of determined what practices were in place when these 30-year-olds were children and high school students that helped, you know, is there a correlation between that and where they're at now. And uh, Number one, not surprising, was that the, the, these kids read the Bible for themselves uh, when they were kids in, in high school. But um, in all of that, they kind of interact with the same thing, and, and they make this great statement in there. This, this one of the researchers says, you know, we're consumed with making our kids great at something instead of helping them become great people. We'd rather them be great at something than be great people. This is why. Because if they're great at something, then they receive the recognition and, and uh, the accolades and, and maybe even the contracts or, or whatever. We're consumed with happiness. I, I can fall into this. What's easiest for me? What makes me happy? I, I think that's, uh, that, that's part of it. I, I, I show this to my son. Here's my, here's my token Boston sports illustration. Um, sorry. Um, Garrett Whitlock. Now here's the thing. This is probably my favorite baseball player in baseball right now. And, I, and he would be my favorite baseball player right now, even if he played for the New York Yankees. As I said it. Um, here's why. I like Garrett Whitlock. Uh, Garrett Whitlock is a rookie relief pitcher for the Red Sox. He is um, in the the running for uh, Rookie of the Year award. Um, Garrett Whitlock is a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, what stood out to me as I came across this interview that he did, I think it was on ESPN, Garrett Whitlock uh, was drafted in part of the Yankees organization and he had what was called Tommy John surgery, which is repairing ligaments in the arm. It, it affects pitchers every once in a while. And when they have that surgery, it ends some of their careers. And for others, it takes about a year for them to come back from that surgery. And Garrett Whitlock was in that situation. There's this, this thing that baseball has called the Rule 5 draft and, and we won't bother with all that. But the Red Sox ended up picking him up in the Rule 5 draft as he was recovering from this surgery. And in this interview, Garrett Whitlock's talking about the church he went to down south. And he said, we had these 21 days of prayer. And he asked, well, what did you pray for? He said, this is what I prayed. He said, I told God that if I can't come back, that, he said, I told God that if I can't play Major League Baseball and remain humble and a good teammate and faithful to Christ, to not let me come back. And I read that article. I said, Zach, come here. I said, I want you to read this. This guy this guy gets it. It's not about his personal happiness, right? We I would you know, I'm reading that going, You're you're crazy. Like be the ball player, make the money. And and he's going, No, 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 it's not about that. It's not about the money, it's not about the happy it's it's about me being the type person I'm supposed to be to honor Christ. Right? Do we think that way? I think another way that this has crept in, um, Sorry, you don't get to see that one yet. Um, uh, but, but human, this whole thing about human tradition. Human ways of thinking, being kind of the be-all, end-all. The elevation and the emphasis on self and, and feelings and experience as authoritative. A guy named Carl Truman wrote a book called The Triumph of the Modern Self. And he talks about that. where It's, it's all about me and my experience and my feelings kind of dictate reality. And, and he said in this interview, and it makes sense. He said, this is why, if you think about 40 years ago, if somebody were to make the statement, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, science and the medical community would laugh at that person and say, you have to change the way you're thinking because that's not reality. Now, If someone makes that statement, because it's what you think and feel, we have to change your body to be in line with your thinking. Now, before we get too critical about that type of thing, this is what we do too. I think, I feel. How often do I become my own authority based on my feelings, my thinking, my perception of things? Instead of Christ and what Christ says and what Christ teaches It is tempting to go along with the philosophy of the times. It is never a comfortable thing to be out of step with what our community holds to be the best thinking of the day. But that thinking may be out of step with God who made us. Paul's warning about hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, is never out of season. So what's the solution To all this. Well, you've already said it. It's found in chapter three, verses one through four. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on things above, not on the earthly philosophies, not on what you think or what you feel. Set your minds on Christ. And the battle for right philosophy always takes place in the mind, It's the mind that Satan attacks. This is why in Ephesians, the sister letter of Colossians, Paul says, Take the shield of faith, right? Faith is a mental thing. Faith is trusting what God says is true. Take the shield of faith. Why? Because the fiery darts of the wicked are aimed at the mind. You quench the fiery darts, the faulty ways of thinking, with faith in who Christ is. C.S. Lewis writes, this, this isn't the quote I was talking about, John, by the way. i got a better one at the end for you. But if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And so Paul talks about the supremacy of the kingdom and the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, uh, verse 12. It says in giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion or the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, the loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, right? The solution to this is being focused on something bigger and something better. So Paul talks about the supremacy of the kingdom. Realize that you have already been delivered into another better kingdom that is superior in every way to the one that has produced such a hollow way of thinking. You say, I belong to that kingdom. I'm not going to be sucked into the bad thinking of this kingdom of darkness Admiral Chester Nimitz who was sent to Pearl Harbor after the attack to take over and conduct operations in the Pacific uh, was a brilliant man and he was offered at one point before that $25,000 a year which doesn't sound much to us but he was offered $25,000 a year to go work for this company and he refused he said no no the purpose, my purpose is to serve in the U.S. Navy. I'm a Navy man. I'm going to serve. You know how much he made in the Navy a year? $3,456 That's what he was paid in the U.S. Navy. And they said, okay, money's not an issue. Write your own check. Tell us what you want. He said, no, you don't understand. I serve in the Navy, and that's what I'm going to do. I thought that's such a great illustration of this. He's like, he had this higher ideal. Who don't care. I got something better. So we're in the kingdom of the sun, right? We've been transferred to the kingdom of the sun. What's the nature of this kingdom? Is it a good kingdom? Is it a kingdom worth selling out to and giving my allegiance to, right? Logical questions. But Paul goes on to give us a description of the sun whose kingdom we are in, which makes sense because you know a lot about a kingdom when you know and understand it's king, right? Is Narnia a good place when we land her? I don't know. Is the white witch in charge or is Aslan in charge? When we find out that Aslan is in charge, then we know that Narnia is a good place place so let's then hear about the son because that's what paul says let's talk about the son whose kingdom you've been transferred into and let me just give you this is all from the book of colossians all right i'm going to try to do it in one breath no that won't work but this is all from colossians you're tempted to go look elsewhere paul says here's the supremacy of christ right he is the image of the invisible god Nothing else is needed to know and understand what we need to know and understand about God. No spiritual experience, no secret knowledge, no angelic or spiritual uh, intermediary. Jesus is the bridge between God and man. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. This combats the fascination with the spiritual realm, right? He's before all things. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's supreme in everything. He's fully God. He's the reconciler through his blood that he shed on the cross, right? He's good. He sacrificed for us. He possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the means by which we are brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. He circumcises us spiritually, which frees us from the rule of the flesh because we couldn't be saved by physical human means he provided the way for the written code and the note of indebtedness against us to be canceled he nailed it to his cross he disarmed and triumphed over evil powers making a spectacle of them he deprived them of their power who do you want to follow whose philosophy do you want to sell out to this guy or some empty hollow philosophy of the world that's what paul's doing jesus is better John Owen says, Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintance with our privileges. We just don't understand how great Jesus is sometimes. So how does this transfer till today? How does it transfer to today? Simply stated, anything that minimizes Christ and elevates self Is false and dangerous and from hell. It separates you from the head of Jesus. So what are the lessons we take away? Number one, know that you are not above being deceived. You are not above being deceived. This is a legitimate threat. Bad philosophy is a legitimate threat to those who claim to follow Christ if they start minimizing Christ in their lives. Beware if you think you stand... You might fall, right? There's a way that seems right unto a man, the Proverbs say. Right? All of us, at some, in some way, shape, or form, can be guilty of wrong thinking and wrong philosophy. And usually the problem comes when we stop spending time in God's word or when we just spend time in our little echo chambers with the people who we know are going to tell us what we want to hear. I spend time with Christ. I spend time in his word. And then I go to people. Do this. Go to someone who you know will not agree with you who will push back on you and tell you that you're wrong. That person really loves you. Know that you're not above being deceived. This should put you on alert. Do not doubt God's grace or fear that you haven't done enough. This philosophy preached that. You have to do more to find favor with God. You have to do more to be spiritual. And Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. Yes, I do, but I do because God, I'm loved by God. I do in response to what God has done. Anytime you're struggling believing that God loves you, you are being influenced by the wrong philosophy. Whenever you think that God's grace is dependent upon your performance, you are not thinking on what is right and what is true. The written code against you has been canceled because what Jesus has done. That means it has been removed, destroyed, and obliterated. Your sin is gone. It's not about you or your performance. You don't have to jump through a series of hoops to be forgiven and loved by God. The philosophy at Colossae emphasized personal achievement and experience. Embrace the gospel and don't go beyond it. Christians, and I mean this in a good way, Christians are dangerous when they live in the love and freedom of the gospel. That's why Paul emphasizes it at the beginning of all of his epistles. Rosaria Butterfield was an atheist, um, a lesbian professor at Syracuse University. She came to Christ. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's phenomenal. I love this quote in there by uh, Rosaria. I think I broke it, Katie. There we go. I find the words of the Puritan Elias Pledger to be of great comfort. I will lay the way of my sinking spirit on the free grace of Christ. They tell me that as I wrestle with my sin, I need to cling more to Christ and to my feelings. Every time I embrace the means of grace, every time I read the word of God and it convicts me of sin, and every time I respond with God's wisdom in repentance and confession of sin, I am risen from the tomb and resurrected into the light by Jesus Christ himself who declares to me that there is no condemnation for me any longer because I am clothed in his righteousness by the power of his resurrection. Right? Beware of making religious practices and rules the essence of our faith. Now again, starting in chapter 3, Paul gives us rules. But it's always in response. He's, we're loved by God, so we obey when I understand I'm loved by God, I also understand that God gives me these instructions because this is what's best for me. This is the way of blessing. But don't get it backwards. Empty religion and just, and just following a bunch of rules and coming and sitting here looking spiritual every Sunday, that doesn't do anything. Paul says it does nothing for the hearts. Be careful about making um, religious practices and rules the essence of your faith. Seek fulfillment in him alone. He possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What, where do you seek fulfillment? Put hostile powers in their place. Yes, hostile powers exist. The demonic realm is a real thing. Take it seriously, but then adjust accordingly. We respect them, but we don't fear them. Right? We have Christ. He's disarmed them. You die to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Paul says, why do you still submit to them? You die to them. You've overcome them through me. Do not move, Paul says. Continue established and firm and do not move from the hope. Don't walk away from the faith. Don't walk away from Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, As you received, so continue. You won't find spirituality and fulfillment anywhere else but in Christ. And lastly, find your security and peace in Jesus. Your life is now hid in him. Your life is now hid in him. They were looking to security, to these spiritual forces. No, it's, it's in Jesus, back into him. When Zach was a little boy and there was something that would scare him, he's not like this anymore. He's a, he's a goalie in soccer. He trucks kids twice his size, right? Uh, but when he was a little kid and there would be something scary, you know what he'd always do? i would be standing there and I'd feel this pressure building against my leg as Zach would back into me. That's where protection is. It's with Daddy back into Jesus. That's where your security lies. That's where your security lies. Be careful how you teach your kids too where security is. It's not in getting jobs. It's not in getting into a good school. Those are good things. I want those for my kids. But at the end of the day, the security is in Jesus Christ. And then Paul ends like he does most of his letters and Jeff addressed a lot of this in Ephesians last week. Right philosophy then always manifests itself in right living obedience and holiness is a response to God's love. Put off, and he gives you a series of things to put off, a series of things to put on, and then tells us once again the practical outworking of this in a Christian household. Understanding the gospel correctly, having a right philosophy, affects how I act as a husband, a wife, a child. Right? It matters. We don't have time to go. There's a great list there in chapter 3, verses 5 through the end of the chapter. One of the ones, you know, we've stressed this, Jeff stressed this a couple times over the weeks, that just, it keeps getting hammered home too, is just this unity. There's this phenomenal statement in there. If a brother has a grievance, against, if you have a grievance against a brother, forgive him. Period. Straight up. This is one of the many instructions. I just find that fascinating. It's just just forgive him. Because I understand the gospel. I've been forgiven. Do all to God's glory. As Tom comes up, I want to read this for you. This is a little section from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, and he's interacting with this man who just refused at the end of the day to surrender worldly philosophies. This man's way of thinking was based on his thoughts and his feelings, and he's having a conversation with a friend of his who thought the same way, but at the end of his life changed and, and reoriented his life around um, the truth. So this is the, the bad guy speaking first. Go on, my dear boy, go on. This is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why, on your view, I was sent to hell. I'm not angry. But don't you know, the good guy responds, you went there because you're an apostate. Are you serious, Dick? Perfectly. Well, then this is worse than I expected. Do you really think people are penalized for their honest opinions, right, honest philosophies, even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions were mistaken? Well, do you really think there are no sins of intellect? Oh there are indeed, Dick. There's hidebound prejudice and intellectual dishonesty and timidity and stagnation, but honest opinions fearlessly followed. they are not sins. I know we used to talk that way. I did it too, until the end of my life, when I became what you call narrow. It all turns on what are the honest opinions? Well, mine certainly were. They were not only honest but heroic. I asserted them fearlessly. When the doctrine of the resurrection ceased to commend itself to the critical faculties which God had given me, I openly rejected it. I preached my famous sermon. I defied the whole chapter. I took every risk. What risk? What was that all likely to come of it except for what actually came? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations, and finally, a bishopric? Dick, this is unworthy of you. What are you suggesting? Friend, I'm not suggesting at all. You see, I know now, let's be frank, our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. At college, you know, we, we just started automatically writing the kind of essays that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. When, when in our whole lives do we honestly face in solitude the one question on which all turned? Whether, after all, the supernatural might not, in fact, really occur. When do we put up one moment's real resistance to the loss of our faith? Well, if this is meant to be a sketch of the genesis of liberal theology in general, I reply that it is a mere libel. You suggest that men like, no, no, I have have nothing to do with any generality, nor, nor with any man but me and you. Oh, as you love your own soul, remember, you know that you and I were playing with loaded dice. We didn't want the other to be true. We were afraid of crude salvationalism, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age, afraid of ridicule, afraid above all of real spiritual fears and hopes. I'm far from denying that young men may make mistakes. They may well be influenced by current fashions of thought, but it's not a question of how those opinions are formed. The, opinion, the point is that they were my honest opinions sincerely expressed. Of course, of course, having allowed oneself to drift unresisting unpraying accepting every half conspicuous solicitation from our desires we reach the point where we no longer believe the faith just in the same way a jealous man drifting and unresisting reaches a point at which he believes lies about his best friend a drunkard reaches a point at which for the moment he actually believes that another glass will do him no harm no harm the beliefs are sincere in the sense that they do occur as psychological events in the man's mind. If that's what you mean by sincerity, they are sincere, but so and so are ours. But errors which are sincere in that sense are not innocent. He's challenging his friend. You got to think biblically, man. Not about you and what you think and what you feel. When do we stop fighting for our faith? When do we stop fighting for truth?